What a joy to be with you. What a joy to see so many faces that you haven't seen for a while. And uh, I've been commissioned by some people to send love to you. So, firstly, my wife, Dalian, she's not with me. And there's two big reasons for that. Uh, the one is that we've just had our first grandchild. My daughter, my daughter gave birth just over a month ago. And uh, that's an incredible journey. But she had to have a caesarean, and so she's not allowed to drive. So not only is, is Dalian looking after them and, and that, but she also has to drive because her husband is working and she's needed to go to the doctor a few times. So I said to her, rather stay that she can drive her around. But she sends so much love to you all. And then secondly, the Feltman clan that... Uh, have got deep roots here in KZN. Uh, Guy and Cheryl and their family send love. They, he wrote to me early this morning. He says, I love those guys. I love those guys. Tell them I love them. So I'm sending lots of love to all of you who know Guy and Cheryl. Uh, they lead our congregation in White River, and, uh, but have deep love and appreciation for you all here. And uh, yeah, a joy to be part of the celebration yesterday at One Life, and uh, once again to Grant and Sue and to your team, uh, we are just the recipients of such impact from the One Life Church over many, many, many years, and we're so grateful to God for you all. So, I have a son who lives in the Netherlands, and um, I went to spend some time in the Netherlands uh, last year and was ministering around some of the churches in the Netherlands. And my son said to me, Dad, if you want to be effective in the Netherlands, you've got to know about Formula One. So he then put me into, I'm sure some of you have watched it, but he put me into this training program to inform me all the details of Formula One and Max Verstappen and all of that. It's massive there. So, I mean, you've got to know. If anybody asks you a question, you've got to have at least some inkling of knowledge of Formula One. So I went through this whole training program about Formula One before I started. But one thing struck me there is that not only is it about the driver and the car and the skills, that there's a critical factor, and that is the selection of tires. And, um, I mean, there's intricate rules that I've kind of forgotten along the way. But you've, you've got to have tire changes along the way, and it's, it's strategic that you can win a race purely based on the selection of the right tire for the right season of the race. And uh, if you select a wet weather tire and it gets too hot and it's not raining, that tire can actually slow you down tremendously. If you select a dry weather tire and it starts to rain, it can cause an accident. And also all of the, the timing of it, sometimes you've got to stick with the one tire longer and then change it. Just, and all these things, the intricacy of it. And I, I, I came back from that realizing I felt God speak to me about leadership and about being able to lead and to adjust to the seasons of God as the seasons come and as the seasons change. And one can stick to a particular way of doing things in the wrong season and it can cost us all manner of things or we can be ahead of the season too soon and it can cost us we can lag behind we can run ahead whatever and one of the masters of leading through all seasons that I know in the scripture 
is Paul. And so I, I've come back from that and delved into Paul's ability to adapt to the seasons in his leadership. And there's a, an account in the book of Acts that for me stands out as one of the most remarkable demonstrations of Paul's leadership and his ability to adapt to the changing seasons, and that is the shipwreck account. And it's quite interesting is that often the shipwreck account in the book of Acts is one that we would read as a historical account. But it's interesting the length of it. You know, it runs through from Acts 27 verse 1 right through to Acts 28 verse 15. And if you think it's a chapter and a half devoted to the, a history of a shipwreck account. If you think of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 is a few verses. If you think of the Ascension, Acts chapter 1, a few verses. But the shipwreck account, the chapter and a half of our short New Testament is devoted to it. And I kind of thought, surely God, you must want to speak to me from that. So that's where we're going to go today. We're going to look at the shipwreck account. We're going to look at what I want to call all-weather shepherds. And learning to adjust to the seasons. The seasons are changing in our country. The seasons are changing in the world. The seasons are changing in our personal lives. All of us just become a grandpa. It's a new season. And we need to understand that God wants us to be those that can understand, well, how do we lead through all weather, all weather shepherds? So I'd love to share with you about that. And so just some background for, in case you're not too familiar with it, but in AD 59, Paul went through a series of major setbacks in his ministry. And it just went from one unfair trial to the next, to the next, to the next. And it started with the reading this morning of Acts 20, where he said he's going to go there. Unfair trials, whatever. And in the end, he gets put onto this first ship. It gets, he gets transported up. He's on his way to Rome. And what happens is, along the way, they change ships. It's the wrong season to be going on a ship. But anyway, the shipwreck account then comes in that they decide to go anyway. And they head into one of these terrible storms. And we have this account of the storm that they say is the most detailed shipwreck account of first century uh, writings ever. It's one of the most, if even from secular studies, the shipwreck account, the detail of it. You read about sandbanks, the direction of the wind, the depths of the sea, the sound of the waves, uh, the, the ballast on the ships, all these things. The detail is just phenomenal. And we have it in our scriptures, and we go through this, and in the end we know the account. They get shipwrecked, and they end on the Isle of Malta, and we see how eventually... God turns the situation around and many lives are touched. So I'd like to go through that. And I, I, I'm just going to read selections of verses. It's a long account. So I'd love you to follow with, with me and keep your Bible open in Acts 27, 28, as we just have a look at the things there. So I'm going to start out with verses 8 to 12, as we pick up about five or six points on what it means to be an all-weather shepherd. So Acts 27 verse 8 says, Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, now I'm going to emphasize some things here. He advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive. So here we see a critical thing we're going to talk about first is there was 
In verse 10 there it says, Sirs, I perceive the man of God could perceive the season. There was a perception there. And he says, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. So I want to point out here, Paul saw that the direction that they were going was going to end in a tragic loss of life. Verse 11 goes on. It says, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship. So once again, we see an alternative to listening to the perception from the Holy Spirit was there was a, a consultation with the pilot of the ship and the owner of the ship. They went to the experts. Verse 12, because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided, I want to pause there for a moment, there's another alternative, the majority decided. So a decision made on that, instead of the perception of what the Spirit was saying, they made a majority decision. The majority decided to put out to sea from there, and then it says these words, on the chance, another option of how we can lead is just take a chance. On the chance that somehow we would reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, before you turn away from that scripture, I want to say, Paul perceived a loss of life, a tragic loss of life, but in the end, it didn't happen. And uh, one can wonder what happened between the perception where God showed him there's going to be a tragic loss of life, but in the end, not one life was lost. And we, we kind of ask the question, well, what happened from his perception and then to the fulfillment that didn't come to pass? And if you go down to verse 22, it says there the following, Paul gets up and he says, Now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you. So from what he perceived to what he in the end declared over the ship didn't, didn't match what had happened in between. In verse 24, if you go a bit further on, we read these words where God speaks to Paul and says the following. He says, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Now, the word granted there is a word that's generally used as a granted in view of your request. So what I want to say, very first thing of being an all-weather shepherd, as we head into you, surely there will be storms in 2024. As we head there, we need to understand, we need to be people that are perceptive and in prayer. I believe as Paul got the, the perception from God that this was going to end in tragedy, I believe he prayed and God granted him all the lives of those on the ship. In other words, he changed the destiny of people because he perceived disaster and yet he turned to prayer and he prayed until the destiny of those under his influence were changed through prayer. We need to be those that are perceptive in prayer not just perceptive and then just surrendering to what we perceive. And we might be perceiving things in South Africa. Maybe that's what one sees. One can see the direction. One can see things. One can perceive perhaps, perhaps your perception of where this country is going is disaster. But you know what? God says perceptive in prayer that it's the time for us when we perceive trouble. That doesn't mean that that's going to happen. It means perceive and pray. And so he prayed and he interceded. And it says, and God granted him, one man praying, 
perceiving disaster, God says, I've granted you the lives of all of those on the ship. It's an incredible thing that we can see that. And this thing of being perceptive in prayer can change destinies. I believe that. I've got a little testimony about that. Many years ago, my, my uh, father-in-law, he's, he's deceased now, but so a number of years ago, he was staying with us in, in Elspreth, and um, Dalian's dad, and she has a brother that lives in Ermelo, and so uh, my father-in-law and he, uh, his wife headed off to go and visit their son in Ermelo. Anyway, we were not really aware of this, but um, in this time, my wife came to me one morning, and she said to me, I feel like we need to pray. This, I'm feeling, I perceive this trouble. And I, I persisted to ignore her. And uh, so lunchtime came, this is in the morning, lunchtime came, she said, the feeling's getting worse. We need to pray. And I continued to ignore her. And I had a lot of things going. I said, okay, okay, I'll get to it later, you know. And um, anyway, by around four o'clock, she came back. She says, we need to call the elders. I feel like, I feel like it's so heavy. And I feel like somebody's going to die. So eventually I said, okay, okay, okay. I'll, I'll sit down now. And I, I, sit, I sat down and prayed. started to pray. So I, I started to say, God, what are you saying? I'm not feeling this burden, but anyway, my wife's feeling it. So I've since learned to listen more attentively to her, just that you know. So I, I went out, and I felt in my heart turn to Psalm 18. So I turned to Psalm 18, and I started to read through Psalm 18. If you know Psalm 18, there's a, it's a whole description of God mighty in battle and all of these things, but it gets to a place where it starts to describe the thing. If you can read through some of those verses um, later, but it starts to describe, and it gets there, and it says, you are a shield for me. And so I read that, and then it repeats it. You are a shield for, for those who love you. And I read that again. And then it speaks about how um, you armed my, you strengthened my arm for battle. My enemies fall at my feet. So anyway, I said, Lord, I don't know what this is about, but I started to pray. I said, Lord, maybe somebody there needs a shield of protection. And Lord, strengthen them for battle. Arm there. And I just prayed that, and Dalian came into the room. She says, I feel like the burden's lifted. So I said, okay, that's great. We went to sleep that night. Early the next morning, we get a phone call from my brother-in-law in Ermelo, and he said, uh, Dillian's dad came to visit them that night, and during the night, they were sleeping in the one room in the house, and a, a burglar had come to the window and had opened the window, which that wasn't properly closed, and was busy climbing in the window. And so Dillian's stepmom woke up, and she saw this person trying to climb in the window and she shouted at the person and he said, I want the cockies. And um, she, in a naive way, said, no, I'm not going to give you the cockies. Anyway, I don't know where they are. So he persisted to climbing in the window and Delian's dad, he was 80, around 85 years old at that time. Um, he heard this thing going on there. And so there was a double bed and then there was... He was on the far side of the double bed and the window was this side where the man was climbing in. And when he saw the man, he launched himself at 85. He launched himself up the bed and started to wrestle with the man in the window. But in this launching of, his, of himself at him, the man fired three shots directly at him. And um, they ended up then wrestling in the window. This 85-year-old and uh, he's, a, he's, he's Dutch, short little Dutch, he was a short little Dutch man, 
And uh, in his testimony to us, he says, I punched him in the stomach. And so, and, and so he did. And eventually the man fell out the window, tried to climb back in, and he slammed the window on his fingers, and eventually the man ran off. And uh, anyway, when we spoke to them, he showed us his, a photograph of his pajama shirt. The police took it as evidence. had a bullet hole through the back of his pajama shirt. That somewhere in the three shots that, that rang around the, the, the room that had gone through there. And I just started to go back to Psalm 18 and it was almost word for word what was written in there. And it has struck me as something that I just see perception followed by prayer is something that we need to know if we're going to be all weather shepherds. Now, there were some alternatives here on Paul's ship that I, I try to highlight them when we read them. Verse 11, it says, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship. As eldership teams, we do have some alternatives to perceiving what God is saying and then responding in prayer. We've got some alternatives. The one is to go to the experts. And this is exactly what, what uh, the centurion did. He consulted the experts, those with a track record of of riding this, this uh, across the, the Mediterranean Ocean in all these things. Let's go to the experts. Let's go to those that, that have got some pre-knowledge and we, we call them in. And it's an alternative to perceiving what God is saying and responding in prayer. Verse 12, the other alternative, the second one, is the majority decided. And again, as eldership teams, there are pressures placed upon us to go with what's going to make the people happy. You know, should we stay in the harbor? Nah, we don't feel like staying here the whole winter. It's cold, it's windy, whatever. Let's push through. Well, what makes you happy? Okay, we're going to go with that. Now, I'm overemphasizing it, but there can be pressure on us where we are making decisions based on what's going to make everybody happy. Sometimes we can make statements like, well, all the elders have agreed. That's good, but that doesn't mean it's right. But all the elders agreed that that's why we're going to launch out on this massive building project. But there's a difference between agreement and faith. Because we need to understand that it's what God has said that produces faith, and then we can act on it. It's not just the fact that we, we, we all agreed as though it's just a practical step, a rubber stamp. There's agreement amongst the elders. But have you heard from God? And then we've agreed that this is what God is saying. And then we can say that because there's a big difference. Otherwise, it's just, well, all the elders are happy. And we make our decisions on that. You see, sometimes our decisions will not make anybody happy. I remember Dudley, Daniel once saying that it was quite a regular thing when he was preaching that he would see people get up and walk out in the middle of his sermons. And sometimes we want to make our sermons so kind of comforting to everybody, but sometimes we have to do what's not comfortable. It's not about keeping everybody happy ultimately. We need to say what God is saying and not be those that are saying, well, let's just do what makes the most people happy. The other one was take a chance. They, they said, well, we're not too sure, but let's take a chance. They said, verse 12, on the chance that somehow we would make it. And sometimes that's how we live. In, and sometimes we take chances, especially when things are going well. Because we've got momentum, we've got enthusiasm, things are just happening. It's all going for it. And so 
let's just take a chance. We're on a roll here. Let's just keep going. Let's just take a chance and maybe we'll get there. You know, I remember with our, one of our building projects that, that uh, there was incredible momentum. God was doing miracles. We, we had got so far through the project. It was like the money was coming in and we were building and the money came in and we were building and the money came in and we were building and we were building and we were building and the money stopped. And I remember at that time we had been so full of enthusiasm and confidence and it was like at that point suddenly the bills were coming in and there was money to pay for it. And I remember at that time where God says this is not about enthusiasm, motivation, we're on a roll. This is about who's the source. And so I remember having an elders meeting saying guys we can't take this to the congregation. We've got bills coming in, we don't have money to pay. Are we willing as an eldership team to sacrifice our salaries? pay the bills that are coming in to finish the building project. And in that place, I remember the team said, we believe that. God is our source. We can have our salaries. We'll pay it out of our salaries. And we never went to the congregation to say, well, look, we've run short, whatever. Because we kind of said to them, we're through, we're through, we're there, we're there. And then God did miracles in that place. He just wanted to remind us, it's not about enthusiasm and motivation and momentum, but it's about what he's saying. He said we must build, but he just brought us to the place where we actually have to stop there and say, God. And then we got a phone call from somebody in Dubai that was traveling there. and said, God, put me on your heart. How much do you still need for your building project? And he says, well, we'd like to give towards it. And we had two or three phone calls from outside our church, and, but it, it caused us that panic of delay a response from God to bring us back to that place that this is not about let's take a chance let's build a building by chance no no what's God saying so you know Peter the disciple of Jesus was highly motivated to defend Jesus from going to the cross he was very enthusiastic we, we, we've got to realize that's not the telling sign that we're in the place God wants us to be we've got to realize we can't just take a chance we've got to what's God said and we've got to look for that. And so there's something there we need to, you know, there are alternatives to perceiving and prayer. So that's the first thing. All weather shepherds are perceptive in prayer. The second one, I'd like to read from verses 20 to 26 of Acts 27. And so let's start there in verse 20. And it says, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now, I want to just pause there and emphasize that little piece of the verse. It says, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. You know, there's a time where, where things are going rough and the storms last a certain degree. And you lose confidence, but you don't lose hope. And then there comes a length of the battle where hope starts to flicker and you actually think, well, God's not going to come through. And then there comes a point in the length of the storm where hope itself is lost. So we need to realize the depth of the trouble that they were in. And it says, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. In other words, they'd cast themselves over to the fact that this is the end. It's over for us. And I felt reading that this morning again before we, I came is that there may be somebody here it's gone through those stages. You know, I'm troubled. Uh, I've still got hope. My hope's flickering. And then there's a place where 
of abandoned hope. So that's where they were. And we see Paul's leadership adjusting to that situation. All weather shepherds adjusting to the circumstances there. And so verse 21 says, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. Now, that's important. Because we can perceive things and then we can be overruled. That's what happened here. Paul perceived what God was saying. They overruled him. So he could have said, well, you should have listened to me, so now we're just going to die. But listen to what he says. You should have listened to me and you should not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now, so though he was overruled, he adjusted to the decision of the decisions that were made, contrary to what he said, he adjusted to that. He didn't just say, well, now I just abandon you all to your stupid decision. He adjusts. He says, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. And so what we see, secondly, all-weather leadership is one that learns how to dig wells of faith. No matter what the decisions are taken around us, no matter what others are doing, we do not surrender ourselves to the fact that others can, can actually dictate our destiny. Even when they may have seemingly powers to influence my direction in life, ultimately, I can dig a well that says God will fulfill what he has spoken to me. And so that's... For me, a critical thing to be an all-weather shepherd is to be full of faith no matter what the season turns. And so there's a few things about that I just want to quickly say. Is that it's a faith that is anchored in what God has put over your life. I will trust that rather than the decisions of people that seemingly can influence my life. Because all of us are at the mercy, so to speak, of the decisions of people in our lives. People's in authority, governments, uh, maybe elders that are, are overlooking us or, or whatever the case might be. We are all seemingly at the mercy of those things. But the all-weather leader says, my faith goes beyond the power of others to determine my destiny. I will have put my faith in the hand of God to get me where I need to be. And that is something that is critical for us to realize. Otherwise, we get into the thing of, oh, if only the government had decided like this or that or the other, then we wouldn't be in this mess. Well, maybe, but who's bigger? We have to be in a place where we can, in our own country, say, maybe we're not agreeing with the things that are happening and we're seeing the things. But you know what? But now I say, my God has said this. And that will prevail no matter what decisions you make, no matter how foolish the decisions you make. You do not have the power to rule over my destiny, what God has said. You see, we anchor it in that. You see, the second aspect of this, and this is a challenging one to all of us, but we need to have a faith that trusts that what I need most in life is not my physical comfort, and not my physical, natural needs to be met. 
That's not my greatest need in life. And so when we're resting our faith on, oh God, you know, if, if I need you to look after my physical comforts and my, my human needs, those things, I, I, I'm trusting you for that. When that's where we are continually looking to see if God is coming through, we're going to get into trouble. Because there's something much bigger than that that we need from God. And Paul wrote about it in the verse that's kind of quoted, I, I sometimes feel too easily. The famous verse about needs. Maybe you're already jumping to that verse in Philippians. My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory. I mean, we throw that verse out and often we throw it out in view of our physical comforts, our physical environment, our physical safety and security. And my God will supply all of my needs. We throw it out there. But what is my biggest need as a believer in Christ? I have a, a friend that is, is a dear friend of mine, Ian Weed, and many of you would know him. But one of his roles in my life is to, is to ask me the probing questions about how it's going with me. And to, to ask the deep questions. Every now and then he'll say, come, let's have a coffee, and he'll ask me some questions. So this year he called me and he said, Alan, if you were to tell me now, what is your greatest temptation? Is there a temptation morally? Is there a temp what is your greatest temptation? And maybe you can think for yourself. So I started to think, I said, I said Ian, I, I don't feel there's any temptation morally. I, don't. I said to him, what my biggest temptation is would be to pull out from the front line. Because the battles and the storms are fierce. I said to him, if somebody were to come and offer me a huge sum of money and say, yeah, you can go and just retire, go with your family and just rest for the next 20 years. I said, that would be a serious temptation for me. And I think of somebody like Demas that Paul wrote of. He says, he's deserted me. And it says because he loved the world, some of the commentators said that it wasn't that he loved sin. He wanted to go and commit moral things. It says he just wanted to live his life like a normal human being for once. Just to get out of the front line where we're continually in this battle and these spiritual battles. I'm hearing about battles and, and things in Belito chatting this morning. And there's forever these battles we're facing. And somebody might just say, just, I can pull you out of the front line and you can just be there. And then I realized, what is my greatest need? My greatest need is that, God, you will supply what I need, the grace I need to finish my race. To get to Rome, to finish my race, to, to achieve that which you've called on my life, that I will not bail out before then. That's my biggest need in life. You know, so God didn't spare them from a from a storm. He didn't spare them from a shipwreck and having to swim through waves and dive off the boat and all the stuff you read the shipwreck again. He didn't spare them from that. He didn't spare them from hunger and whatever. And you know, when Paul wrote those words in Philippians 4, my God will supply every need of yours. You know, it was after 26 years of ministry. He wasn't talking about a smooth ride. My God will supply our needs. Life's just going to be smooth. He was talking of 26 years. He wasn't coming fresh out of seminary saying he has a theological truth. He was coming out of 26 years and you read those 26 years. Storms, beatings, left for dead, all those things. And then he says, my God will supply all of your needs. You see, the context is very different to the way we often want to put that thing. 
And we need our faith not to rest in that God is a God that's going to supply all of my comforts and my perceived needs. God is a God who's going to supply what I need to finish my race. That's my biggest need. Full of faith. You see, God had said to him, you will stand before Caesar. The road to Caesar's courts may have been different in Paul's mind than it was in how God got him there. But God got him there. And that's where our faith lies, you know. So, the third one, verse 23 says, An angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. To me, that's like Paul hoisting his flag on the boat. Generally, boats have flags. But here in this place, the people didn't listen to Paul in the beginning. They went to the pilot and all the experts, and his voice was just, didn't have a voice. God gave him a platform. When he got a platform on the boat to speak, and all ears were open now, because they'd listened to the experts and they'd ended in disaster. And that was his platform. He stepped up and he hoisted his flag. He says, the God whom I worship. And it reminds me of something that happened right at his conversion, Paul's conversion. And uh, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and he was blinded. And then this man gets sent to lay hands on him, pray for him, with this message. And he says, says of Paul, he is my instrument to carry my name. Just those words. He's my instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, before the kings, and the children of Israel. You see, Paul's mission, he was launched into his ministry with the words that he is a a name-bearer of the king. And that's something that I believe helps us through all weather circumstances, is that I'm a name-bearer. I carry the flag of someone, no matter what the season is, I must remember I bear his name. And the whole 270 people on the boat were watching. And we've got to realize is that no matter what I'm going through, remember this one thing, people are watching. They're watching your life. And it's in those situations where the storms are all around that they're watching you intently. And that's the place to remember I'm a name bearer. And so in our country right now, we are the name bearers of the Prince of Peace. In a country that's tormented with all kinds of violence and and all kinds of things that are going on but we are the flag bearers what do the people see when they look towards us do they see a representation of who he is the fourth one all weather shepherds even in the storm know how to quiet them themselves to hear God and I know he had an encounter with an angel but he had quieted himself enough where he could plead to God for the safety of the souls on that boat. He could quiet himself until he was in a place where he had his heart open to hear God. And so I think it's so important, I'll just briefly mention this, it's very important what we are giving our ears to. Because if all we can hear is the, the waves crashing on our ships, that's all we hear, and the shouts of the people that are panicking, that's all we hear, We're going to struggle to find faith. We've got to learn how to be leaders that in the midst of the storm can hear what is God saying. We can quieten our hearts to hear him because there's whatever your way of doing that might be, 
Be it like David to head off on your own until he could hear God and come back and strengthen his men or whatever the case might be. But we need to be a people that no matter what's going, the most critical thing, one word from God can bring peace over my life. I found it. Just, just one word. There's been times where I'll just read a verse and in the middle of a verse, one word and suddenly it's like that word gives me enough strength and peace to go through a whole battle. Just one word. So we need to be those that can somehow press in until we hear to press through the silences and whatever. I, I went out to pray the other day and I said, God, I desperately need you to speak to me. I'm trusting you to speak to me today. And I walked and I walked and I walked and eventually I got frustrated with God because there was just nothing. So I got home and I was frustrated because I said, God, you're just silent and you'd know that I so desperately need to hear from you. And I sat down and I picked up my wife's um, daily devotion book and I opened it to the date and it says God's silence is his loudest voice and I realized you know it's exactly and and I, I looked at that and it just was a whole passage of how when God is silent he's saying I've got you you don't need another word I've got you and I, I knew then he spoke to me so we've got to learn how to press into those things of hearing what God is saying number five and I've got six so I'm nearly done number five it's already been preempted in the ministry during the worship. But, you know, when Paul had gone through an unfair trial, put on the boat, got ignored, ended up in the storm, then they hit the sandbank, then they were shipwrecked, then he ends up on the beach, and all of these things. You know, when he gets on the beach, I mean, they've just come through this. I mean, you can imagine how exhausted, cold, wet, miserable, everything, and he goes and he tries to warm up the people so he tries to help them to make a fire on the beach to warm up all these 270 people so here's Paul trying to help make a fire and as he's picking up the fire with a snake bite now go through your mind you know of, of what's that saying to us I mean it's pretty obvious you can just think well this is it I've gone through all this God and, and I've been through this and then that went wrong and then that went wrong and then that went wrong and then that and then I was just trying to help these people and then and we realize something. What Paul does is the snake's hanging on him. And they're all watching him, waiting for him to die. But all he does is he shakes it off. And he carries on making the fire. And it's a beautiful picture for us. Is that what Grant shared is so real. That this oldest plan of Satan is to get something and then we just let it hang there. And we don't shake it off. And we let the bites of, of hurts that people have said and things people have been done against. So we've all got our stories of things that have bitten us. But we let it hang there. But Paul didn't let it hang there. He shook it off and he kept on mission. And I think we need to understand there's something there. All where the shepherds learn how to shake things off and keep on mission. Life is too short to hold a fence. And yet I've met so many Christians that can keep an offense for 20 years. Still upset with me after 20 years. Why? And so we need to understand, we need to realize this thing. It's mature Christians that need to hear this from time to time. That actually, we can be so good at keeping hurts and keeping offenses. Year in, year out. And Paul just shook it off. It was kind of his view that opposition is part of the journey. Sometimes we can get so spiritual and say, oh, all of these things must be a sign. 
It is a sign the devil hates you. Just keep going. Just keep going. Don't make such a fuss of it. Don't get it all spiritual and spooky. Shake it off. Keep going. The last time he tried to get into Europe, the first time he got, he got assaulted by, the scripture says, a python spirit. I mean, the devil was trying to keep him out of Europe in every means. He first sent the demonic python spirit against him. Now he sends a real snake to stop him getting back into Europe. So we just need to realize this is it. Opposition is part of the course. Shake it off and keep going. And I think sometimes we keep that thing on because we've kind of got this thing that we want to put the responsibility for what's gone wrong in our lives on everybody else. And sometimes we just live in that space, you know. If we hadn't been asked by those elders to do that, you know, we would have been in a much better place. And so we, we keep it in. But actually, we just need to be, take responsibility. Shake it off. And keep going. It's such a critical thing. We're in such critical times. We cannot afford to be walking around with serpents hanging on our, our arms. Forgive the ridiculous picture, but hopefully that is what it is. But what we also see here is that Paul perceived all of these things about the storm and the angels spoke to him, but he didn't get discernment to see the snake in the pile of wood. And sometimes we just need reminders in our life. I don't say Paul did, but we do. We need reminders in our life. You know, we're just ordinary people. Don't get too taken up with how spiritual and important, how discerning, how gifted you are. You know what? Yes, Paul, he can discern all of these things, but he didn't discern the serpent in the pile of wood. And it bit him. But you know what? We ordinary people live in the joy of being ordinary people on mission for God and he will do what's necessary to get us to Rome no matter what comes against us. Lastly and finally, and I think there's just something that strikes me. This is for me the most vivid picture of all of the things I've said. Is that Paul was deeply, deeply concerned and kind to the people on the boat, all of them. I mean, it's quite remarkable where he gets up and they've made all these stupid decisions, they've arrested him wrongly, they're sending him to the... Everything, I mean, it was just... Some of the, the sailors wanted to abandon them all and take the lifeboats and leave everybody else to die and whatever, and, and the, the, the soldiers wanted to slaughter all the prisoners just to lighten the load and all these kind of things. I mean, it was a bunch of messed up people on their boat except for a few prisoners there maybe but most of those prisoners were on death row they were going to die anyway so I mean there was no real reason to be kind to this lot at all but yet he says guys don't be afraid calm down everybody okay bring some food guys we need some food I mean can you just see the heart of this man in all of this situation he was kind to the people and we need to realize one of the predominant things we need to carry as believers in this world with all its sin and all the corruption and disasters going on is that this is a place where we need to show kindness. We've never abandoned it. He was kind to them. He says, take some food. Don't worry, nobody's going to die. He stopped the, the, the sailors from, from abandoning the ship. He says, no, 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 stay here. We're all going to make it. He just was this kindness. And then in the midst of this, there's this beautiful picture where as they're about to eat, he stands up in front of everybody on the boat and he takes the bread and he breaks it and he turns to heaven and he gives thanks. I can just imagine if I was one of the people, a sailor or a prisoner or whatever on the boat, 
that image must have burned like a photograph into your brain. That this, sorry, lightning bolts, that in the midst of the storm, imagine the waves breaking, the boat's busy falling apart from the storm, whatever, the things are shaking, and we're getting ready to dive overboard, and the other man stands up, and he says, thank you, God, for your provision. Breaks bread, eats them, eats, eats in front of them, and they all share this. That image, can you imagine the captain of the boat on his next voyage? And a bit of a storm came up. Can you imagine what must have been going through his mind? I think that image. Can you imagine those sailors, the next time they were on a boat, what they would be telling all their other sailors? Hey, you remember when we sailed past you the other year? There was this guy. The boat was breaking. And he stood up and he stopped. So I want to end with this. The impact that that kindness had, giving thanks to God in the midst of this. I mean, I, I just imagine what the prisoners, as they were locked up in those dungeons in Rome, waiting to be fed to the wild animals or whatever the case. I wonder what they told their fellow prisoners. How did you get here? Now let me tell you. And then there was this guy there. And he knew this God. And we, none of us... I, I, I can just imagine those Roman soldiers on that boat, on their next march across Europe or into Asia, whatever, and they're marching along. Hey, let me tell you about this guy. It was on the ship. We nearly drowned. This guy. We just need to see something that when we are those that are thankful and that are kind, the impact we, we leave on the lives of people in the midst of storms will spread far and wide, far beyond our wildest dreams. And sometimes we think one act of kindness, what really does it count? I want to say it can change the world. 276 people, I had my number wrong, 276 people had a story to tell that day. So I want to end with prayer because I think we know storms. I think we, we're familiar with that. But I just believe God wants to say to us, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory. You might not get to Rome the way you thought, but you have a God who's hand on your life will overrule the powers of any human being, any human decision, any storm, any serpent, any demonic onslaught. My God shall supply all of your needs. For those that are saying, well, what I want to do is I want to bail out right now. My God shall supply all of your needs. I've been there many times. I said, that's it. My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory. So well, let's just call on his name to, today as he is the one who's come to say that to you personally this morning. To speak those words into your hearts perhaps in a new way. Would you open your heart? Let's pray together. Lord, we declare your word is true. Maybe not in the path and the set of circumstances we imagined but I put my faith in the God who says to me, my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches in glory.
And we honor you, God, for the one that has made all of this a reality for us, and that is your son, who faced the greatest storm when he stood at the cross and he cried out to you. And he said, Lord, would you take this cup from me? But you had a way for him to get where he needed to be. It was not the way of choice for him. But he said, oh God, not my will, yours be done. And you got him there because you're a God that will supply all of our needs according to your riches in glory. And what you will achieve for us is more than what we can hope or think or imagine. So I pray for everyone here that through the comfort of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of your Holy Spirit, you might breathe fresh courage into your shepherds because we serve a God that will supply all of our needs. Strengthen our faith, O oh God, in this God who is faithful. We are not at the mercy of men and governments and leaders and powers. We are in the merciful hands of our God. And we want to rest there. As we head into a new year, we declare you are our God and you will get us to Rome. In Jesus' name. For that is who you are. Our oh Lord, stir our hearts to hear your voice, to press in in prayer, to know your courage, to trust you, Lord, to be kind, to be like Jesus in the midst of the trials and storms we may go through. And we know, Lord, we are trusting for multiplied impact. No matter what life throws at us, you are able to turn it around for multiplied, 276 times over, multiplied impact for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.